Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 277. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Hey, Bill. How are you? Um, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm here. It's, uh, it's a Monday. Okay. I, uh, I have my tea. Very nice. Well, <clears throat> I uh, did my number two youth group last night. I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting mellower in my old age because I did the food relay. <clears throat> and I've been doing the, uh, yeah, the first time, well, I can't remember what I did exactly, but I used to pr- do pretty disgusting things in the food relay. And last night I gave pop tarts, uh, you know, string cheese. I used to give like sardines and onion and cream cheese. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think I'm just getting my favorite activity is, uh, the Alka-Seltzer tablet competition. You give everybody an Alka-Seltzer tablet and put it in their mouth and the person that wins is the last person to spit it out. Yeah, that's a good one. People look like, if, if, especially <laughs> if you get a little red eye in the photo, it looks like, like a demon. It's awesome. Yeah. I did a whole youth group, uh, in celebration of the egg. And the final thing was I climbed up, uh, this was in Texas and I climbed up on the, uh, pinnacle of the temple of first Presbyterian church in Midland and was dropping eggs. I like that. And the senior pastor wanted to do a gag of where I would drop uh, a hard boiled egg. Uh, ah. then he'd catch it and he'd look cool. I accidentally on purpose forgot and just <laughs> and gave him a raw one. I don't think anything involving an egg looks that cool. I'm like, I, I, oh, it was fun. Yeah, you know, you got I, I'm just saying, I don't think I'd be like, hey, Bill, throw the egg down. I'm going to look cool catching. I, yeah, I well, I guess it was his. Yeah, he wanted to. He, no, anyway. I, yeah, things that, you know, that'd be an interesting episode. Things I used to do with youth group, uh, you know, games that are no longer legal <laughs> or your insurance company will no longer let you do. So, anyway, yeah, because we used to do this one thing where you do the rodeo. This back, I mean, when you had horses in Texas, and you would have to, and I think I, I learned this at a young life camp in Colorado, where you uh, you do a relay where you have a raw egg in some in someone's mouth. You have to ride the horse, dismount the horse, and then pass the egg mouth to mouth to your next person on your team. What about just salmonella from the raw egg? Well, that's why we can't do that one anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, well, actually, the salmonella is on the outside of the egg, so that made it even more dangerous. Let's see, we've learned, we've changed, we've evolved, and then this morning I did. Um, Maybe the funeral for the oldest person I've ever done. Uh, Harry Myers, great guy. Uh, just uh, two months shy of his 105th birthday. And he was um, still, just got sick and was in the hospital just for a day and died. Uh, mine was still sharp. He was born um, in December of 1914. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, seen, saw a lot in his life. Just a, just a great soul. I mean, um, what his... Uh, Son said about him, "If um, we all should be so lucky that our children would say such things." So, at any rate, it was just a beautiful, beautiful service and an honor to do tribute to him. I talked yeah. to him and wrote a book. It's a great book called "How Does It? What Does It Feel Like to Die?" And the book is fantastic. She's she's an English professor and a journalist, mm-hmm. but her mom was in hospice care like a decade ago with breast cancer. And after that, a couple of years after that, she just and she's a hospice volunteer and just convinced there's not enough stuff written about actual the experience and feelings you go through as you're dying like right. like you know yeah. how the organs break down what the right. and you know how, how you choose where you die 
Such a well-written book. Yeah. Uh, What's it, it called just, again? It's called, uh, how does it feel? And let me just make, uh, let me just check to make sure I have the title exactly correct here because it's her name is Jenny Deer, and the book is is called What Does It Feel Like to Die? Hmm. Inspiring New Insights into the Experience of Dying. And it's a it's a really you know it's not long. It's like 175 pages or something. But it's it's a very well-written book. That's beautiful. It reminds me uh, one time Norm Kelly. Some of you listening remember Norm, a uh, great guy. One just a the epitome of what a school teacher should be. I mean, there were probably a dozen people who became school teachers because they had him for their fourth or fifth grade teacher. And um, but Norm got pancreatic cancer. Very faithful man, fought it. And um, you know, I got a call, rushed to the hospital. His family was in there with him, and um, you know, he really in his last stages, he looked like oh, this one medieval painting of Saint Francis in ecstasy. Uh, he was so emaciated and. Uh, um, and, but he's, you know, the family, he had said, I think I'm, I'm dying and we're all around him and they're praying and it's quiet and we're sitting there, I don't know, for 20 minutes. And then he, then he opens his eyes and he goes, okay, I, I, false alarm. I don't think I'm dying right now. And then he goes, I'm sorry. I've never done this before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we all die. We all just started laughing, but yeah, I mean that is that's kind of what do you you know you 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 only do it once and uh, and uh, yeah, brother Norm lived a couple more weeks after that, but I still I've never done this before. So that would be it's like in Star Trek Three when Doctor McCoy says to Spock, "I mean, can't we? I thought we could cover a little philosophical ground, the afterlife, the meaning of." He's like, "Come on, Spock, you've actually gone where no one's gone before, and come back to tell. I mean, can't you tell talk to me about it?" Like it would be impossible to discuss the experience without a common frame of reference. Yeah, that's good. That's <laughs> yeah, very good. Go. That's there good. You go. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting too. When you're 104, you outlive all your peers, but um, still, the family, the place was full. He has uh, two living children, and uh, how many grandchildren? Six or seven grandchildren, great grandchildren. But one of the things, his one brother died young, and he basically became the father for his niece and nephews, and. It was really interesting to have a couple of them come up. So, Harry, God bless you. Thank you for being the person you were. And we'll see you on the other side or in the day, the day of resurrection. Yeah. So <clears throat> this is our uh, third third podcast on the uh, subject of the romance of orthodoxy. And it's just in time because uh, this weekend, in one form or another, we're expecting Kanye West's, West's new gospel album, Jesus is King. And he's been doing all these Sunday services. Well, you know, his early rap stuff, there was a lot of religious stuff in his early yeah. stuff. He was, I mean, I remember one of my kids playing his first or second album. I really liked it. Uh, it was it was really good. Kanye's uh, Sunday service, that was invite only. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, well, you could say, you know, Jesus, you know, called people up. But you could, anybody could follow Jesus, I guess. I mean, many didn't, but I guess it was not just invite only. But Yeah, well, there we go. All right. So I will... Uh, We'll have to. We'll maybe have a. We haven't done it for a while. Maybe a review. We may have to review the new Kanye. There's a Twitter handle, Kierkegaardashian. So it's sort of like, <laughs> sort of like, it's sort of like a fuse between Twitter, between uh, Kierkegaard and a Kardashian, which is awesome. That's funny. It's pretty great. In fact, maybe I'll just randomly just share insights throughout the podcast from <laughs> the car. Carter, what did I say? Kierkegaardian. That's a pretty. I mean, as far as creativity goes, that's pretty good. 
Yeah. Great Kierkegaard Kardashian. Oh, uh, that's pretty good. If I oh Kierkegaard Kim Kardashian Kim Kierkegaard is dead is one of them. But I thought there's a I thought there's one a I thought there is a regular just Kardashian, but Kim Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard is this the right one? Oh, I think this is uh, yeah. uh this is this this is the one. Kim for yeah, Kim Kar Kardashian is dead. This is the same they just changed the handle. Uh <laughs> pin tweet. My book my beautiful despair is out now. It's everything you need to endure the despair of 2019 while looking your best. <laughs> That's pretty good. That was pretty funny. That was very good. <laughs> what, uh, this weekend was, have a safe weekend, everyone. Sunscreen will not protect you from despair. <laughs> Today's look, bronze, braided, and so dreadfully bored that pain itself has lost its refreshment for me. <laughs> As well, this person knows both their Kardashian and a little bit of their Kirkwood. A minimalist black outfit is classic. It says, I suffer the most extreme form of human misery. <laughs> there we go. This is great. I could read these all day. There we are. I think they're fantastic. And maybe I will continue to <laughs> periodically, periodically just share one. All right. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedi, and Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So, well, I, I misled you because we changed our mind. At the last episode, I, th- I kind of uh, said we were going to look at uh, anticipating Marcion, uh, where we <clears throat> where we talked about where Christianity and Judaism kind of break in the first century. and But the, the Marcion goes kind of extreme. But before we get to Marcion, maybe, you know, uh, rightfully, probably chronologically, uh, the next one. And this one kind of is a broad category as well. So there are a lot of different things the church says no to that come under this rubric. Yeah. And it is, uh, and one of those things is not Donald Trump <laughs> <laughs> right now. Yeah. So, uh, uh, docetism. Yeah. Docetism. Yes. From right. The Greek dokeo to seem right. Yeah. But the idea, basically it's a, it's a category that covers, uh, you know, different theologies that either to the point, either de-emphasize the humanity of Christ, um, uh, 
to this point, straight up deny the humanity of Christ. So it first raises its head. I guess there's some speculation, you know, that that's kind of what's, there's some kind of form of this, that the book of Colossians is aimed at uh, Ignatius, is uh, Ignatius of Antioch um, speaks of it in a couple of his different letters and uh, condemns it. So um, what, that's maybe that's what, so how would we talk about this in terms of, where was this challenge coming from? Why did it come from? Perhaps even one could say that the Corinthians were, were well on the road to that kind of thinking and their denial of the resurrection. I just want to say that Corinthians were also seemed like, you know, very self-centered. And the Kardashian on that topic says, <laughs> we love selfies. The despairing self, by taking notice of itself, tries to make itself more than it already is. Mm. Just a little more spiritual wisdom from the Kierkegaard Ashen. Yeah. Well, we uh, when I mentioned the Corinthians, again, uh, this was uh, the thesis of my professor of beloved memory, J. Christian Becker, that the chief problem with the Corinthians, uh, you know, the punchline of First Corinthians is found in chapter 15 in their denial of the resurrection. So all the ethical problems, uh, the rich uh, or the uh, rich versus poor, weak versus strong, their laxity when it came to church discipline, uh, their uh, – attraction to the spirituals, uh, those who were more spiritual or whatever that meant, um, all that wraps around the idea that they de-emphasized the importance of the physical realm, and that showed up in their understandable, if you would, if you think from a Greek perspective, their um, skepticism about the idea of the necessity for a bodily resurrection. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's... It's interesting. I mean, I wasn't thinking in terms of the resurrection. I was thinking just to go back to Schleiermacher's uh, essence of heresy. I mean, he thinks if the essence of the Christian faith is the experience of being redeemed through Jesus, this mm-hmm. conscious, a religious communion, it's not right. just individualists, it's a communion that's identity is experiencing redemption that comes through Jesus. He thinks that then it implies four things that one, we're in need of redemption, two, that we can be redeemed. Three, that Jesus is sufficiently unlike us that he can be our Redeemer, that we call him the Redeemer. He's just not one of us. And four, that Jesus is sufficiently like us that he can be our Redeemer. So he thinks that basically most of the heresies, and he thinks these are ideal types. There's no, right. You don't locate a pure version in history, but they, they tend to fall out this way, he thinks. is something that we, Pelagianism, which is we don't re- need redemption as such, though we may need someone who can show us how to be a little better. Manichaeanism creation is so corrupted or wicked that it is essentially irredeemable. Nazaritism or Ebionitism, Jesus is just a human like us, so he does not possess any special quality that can redeem us. Or Docetism, Jesus only appeared to be fully human, and so it was too unlike us to provide the kind of redemption we need. So it's interesting, because there you have this sort of, you know, this idea that we need redemption and Jesus is the Redeemer, and he thinks all these sort of, all heresies are, are one of the things that there are basically forms of somehow denying that reality. Yeah. So what was the appeal of having Jesus just appeal, appear to be human? I guess, where does that come from in the ancient world? And maybe where do, where do we see it? Um, where do we see it in, in the, in our current time? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was thinking of Phil Carey's book, the recent book, uh, the meaning of Protestant theology. He talks about how at the heart of, Christian proclamation, which he calls the reality of the divine carnality, God taking on flesh and descending to mm-hmm. us for our redemption. And he thinks that, you know, that the sort of Platonic tradition, 
you know, and, and you see, uh, you know, building up to Augustine and maybe climaxing Augustine in the West, as far as, you know, a, a full, you know, one of the clear expositors who becomes sort of huge in the, in the, on the horizon of the tradition is, is this idea that, that, you know, it, it's, it's almost like if the human condition from the biblical point of view requires the mighty acts of God, the God of Israel, and, and the decisive mighty act is the divine emptiness and the carnality coming down to save us, mm-hmm. you know, then if, it's almost like the central platonic problem is we're in the cave, Right, and we need out of the cave, right? Yeah, okay. And the shadow, like the, what we're seeing around us, is a deception, right? It's like right. it's like the Matrix or something. And so, it, it you see how like this is, you know, when you try to fuse these mm-hmm. two things, you, you kind of uh, it's it sometimes it can create kind of a weird thing, like when uh, Jeff Goldblum gets in the teleporter and the flies in there. <laughs> well, yeah, I think the other thing too. I mean, and certainly most of the Gnostic groups would be some kind of docetic. Right. And, right, and so right. if salvation, it, if redemption doesn't come by God descending to us and 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 making us more fully human, redeeming right, our humanity, right. if it comes by delivering us out of the cave, right? That and this world is the cave, and there's a pure right. sort of more spiritual world. And one of the things that Phil likes to say in the book is that Platonism is much more spiritual than Christianity. That yes. we think of spirituality today, we're always always talking about something that's kind of is some vestige of Platonism, right? right. And, and that if that's the idea, then then if if the real, you know, you know, in the cave analogy, you know, you're if you're sitting there chained to a wall and you've never seen the outside, and all you see is shadows on a wall of little lines and little trees, mm-hmm. uh, then you would think that the shadows are real. But then if you could turn around, you, you would think the most real thing is, are the little cutouts that, you know, people right. are, are, are right. holding up behind a fire and you can't see them. And that, but then if you escape, you, oh my gosh, there really are real uh, trees and lions and things like that. And, and then the most real thing is the, is the real light, the sun. And so you're for, so basically in the analogy, this world that we're in is the, is the chained, you know, part of, uh, you know, us chained and looking at the wall is, is the physical world as we think of it. And right. you, you, the world of sort of the forms, beauty, unchanging, uncorruptible is, is, is a more spiritual, non-material world. So the thing, the thing with undergrads, I always say, you know, it's interesting, like think about a triangle, it's just close your eyes, think about a triangle, right? And if you're thinking about it, you're thinking three lines, you know, that line up to, you know, 180 degrees, whatever. But you've never really seen a triangle because when we draw one, it's not really three perfect, perfect right. lines. Lines right. go infinitely. And all. Right. So really, the triangle exists more purely in an immaterial thing than right. a material thing. So if that's your story, right. then it doesn't make sense for God to come down into the mess to try to redeem it. It, it makes sense for God to pull us out of the mess. Right. And so then why would you need a fully incarnate God? Maybe you just need a God that looks like he's human and is really more like the sort of guide that ta- that leads us out of the cave. Yeah, I mean, you could say that Plato himself is concerned about epistemology, but his students are much more concerned about cosmology and yeah, and spirituality. And I think, you know, from the from the Gnostic um uh, for we all one one really important thing to keep in mind is sometimes people forget or try to react against that there's not a part of the New Testament uh or the early Christian church that's not uh influenced by Plato, small p. I mean, the very the fact that the language is Greek, yeah, and, and so it's all shaped. So there's a sense where 
we're not actually saying, well, let's get back to the pure Jewish Jesus or the pure Jewish we're Christianity. About Hebrews, the, the temple, you know, the, yeah. the parallel. Yeah. The, the, I mean, first or second temple of Judaism at the time of Jesus, as well as the Pharisees and others, were, were very influenced by certain kinds of uh, Greek thought. Um, you wouldn't have the rabbinical method if it wasn't for Socrates. So, <clears throat> but the idea partially with the docetic, what is the, you know, you get back to the problem. I think that's, that's one of the Schleimacher's. What is the human problem? And and if being, if the creaturely world is the human problem, and that's kind of what, you know, both you were saying with the, with the idea of the cave, but what humanity, to be saved is to leave the creaturely world, then why would the Savior become a creature? Right. And so, uh, and that's part of even, you know, we get glimpses of it when, you know, Paul seems to be doing okay at Athens till he gets that resurrection of the body part. And then that's when they lose it because why in the world would we want to this tomb, um, this, you know, this chain around, you know, this chain and ball and chain around us? Why would we want that to take with us when the higher realm is to is to get away from that? And in the by the way, it's a great example of like the failures of natural theology. Everybody always looks, looks at Paul Athens like, yeah. But he didn't do real well with natural theology. I mean, he was doing okay until he like got out of the natural theology, right. and then it was like, you know, wait, wait how far does natural theology? Yeah, you know, he even quotes a couple of their obscure poets, and that's pretty good. But yeah, you're right. No, I think, this, and it's also part of the problem, the inherent limitations of apologetics in general. But I think the fact, this idea that the Christian answer is is a it's a balance, though, right? Because ultimately, it's not that we're creaturely inherent because we're creatures is what prevents us from being saved, but it is an obstacle to us fully be having communion with God. So there is a sense where the creature creator becomes creature. So the creatures can become, you know, part of the creator. I mean, that's, there is, that's part of this, the ultimate Orthodox salvation answer. But one of the things the early church says, says no to first is this idea that the material world is inherently bad. Uh, that's not, but, but also even our redemption. I mean, it's 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 redeemed. But I mean, Jesus' body is clearly some kind of spiritual body, but it is a body. It's circumscribed. It's it's got like it's not. When, when, fine. When 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 is Jesus' body a spiritual body? After the resurrection. Okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, post resurrection rather. <laughs> right. I mean, so I mean, we even rede- union with the Creator in redemption doesn't mean we're disembodied we're, we're 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 embodied in a different kind of body now we will say that the, now the early church didn't necessarily have that worked out i mean that's the the, the yes it is in the footnotes <laughs> i mean it's in the law all right the it's, second it's third corinthians the second surgery didn't have the the second i mean in some levels each solution to one problem but Irenaeus, you know is well but what's the nature of the human subject in Irenaeus? i mean I, I, again I, i'm saying that Solving, uh, you know, it, all these kind of, I mean, the, I think the beauty of orthodoxy is the dynamic nature which it comes together and each solved problem, okay, or each, you know, and again, how solved they are, I put that in brackets, but each time they come up with this is no, we have to say no to this to hold on to this, then that always raises some new some new issues. And I, I think that's fine. But but I do think the, the why we said why the church said no to the ascetic nature was also because salvation was a historic event. It happened in yeah. it happened in space and in time, and I think that was a very important thing. Where you know you can understand why a lot of the Greek thinking folks and the mystery religions. I mean, there was a whole history of appearances of the deity. The deity appeared to show up, and so there are a lot of creation. There are a lot of uh, redemptive myths. 
that are in in the mystery religions and and in the in the Greek mythology that you could see why they would be attracted to this idea. Well, this was this appeared to be a human, but this was really something else going on. It could even be a function too. I mean, you know, if you look at what is being condemned, maybe in Colossians uh, as well as in First Timothy, uh, these could have been kind of Jewish Gnostic groups which saw Christ as an intermediary being, like an angelic being. Uh, there's like a metronon uh, Christology maybe lurking out there in, in, the, in the side notes uh, of uh, Pseudepigrapha. So, I mean, there, there are different, you know, making sense of what Jesus the Savior was, who he was, and also, um, you know, what he was saving us from. It was uh, natural for some folks to de-emphasize the humanness of Christ, or even say that, that that never even existed, which some of the some of the Gnostic texts actually say that that Jesus didn't. He was watching the crucifixion. He didn't really participate in it. It's interesting. This is a great book by C. Fitzsimmons Allison, who I think uh, he's a bishop of South Carolina. I think he was a kind of a contemporary of Paul's all, or maybe Paul worked for him as a curate or something. I think that's. I think in New York, Paul was one of Paul's first people he worked for. He has this book called The Cruelty of Heresy, which is great. And he has this great couple sentences about docetism. He says, Docetism is the teaching about Christ's spiritual and divine nature that sacrifices his, his human and historical nature. It grows out of the tendency of fallen human nature to flee risky and vulnerable implications that belong inevitably to the very nature mm. of love. Wow. A tendency exemplified by the kind of false spirituality implied in statements such as, The more I see of people, the more I love of God. <laughs> And then he says later, I'm religious, but I don't believe in institutional Christianity is often another docetic way to say, I want to be spiritual without any of the ambiguities, frustrations, and responsibilities that embody spiritual commitment. Institutions are embodiments and substantiations of ideals, aims, and values. Docetism is a spiritual abnegation of any responsibility to incarnate ideals, values, or love. It is altogether too easy to love and care in the abstract. Concrete situations of diapers, debts, divorce, or listening to, and being with someone in depression and despair is the test of real love. Docetism is the religious way to escape, having love tested in the flesh. All of us are tempted to audit life rather than participate fully and be tested by it. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful statement. It's kind of like, give me the cosmic Christ, but I don't want any of his his people, yeah? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I think I've told this story before. I was in Texas when... The Last Temptation of Christ came out, and uh, which I think is actually a really fun. Movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. <laughs> and uh, but uh, there were you know some theaters couldn't have it because there were threats of bombing it, and so I had this gave this talk about it. people wanted me to talk about it. There was probably 150 people in the room, and uh, you know I just said, "All right, so what are your issues with this?" And one person said, uh, <clears throat> "You know, I am deeply troubled that my Jesus was tempted." sexually and i said well jim have you ever been tempted sexually and of course it's like people applauded he's kind of yes i have but then you better hope your savior was and glad he didn't say have you seen the women in this congregation <laughs> bill i mean i mean you could have said something like that well it was yeah it was a fine it was a fine looking congregation <laughs> handsome congregation <laughs> it was a handsome congregation but you know the whole idea of that they were offended at the idea of Jesus was a sexual being, and that's part of that's docetic. Uh, you know, I think again, um, periodically I I drift out of the safety zone and try to engage groups that aren't quite like me, and, and I've gotten some pushback from some of our hyper Calvinist friends. Nice. Uh, 
and uh, who I who I now kind of feel some of my best friends are hyper. Well, some of yeah, they're kind of like uh, the Zwingli in Taliban is what I'm calling. Exactly. Them. Yeah, I mean they would, they would have been like Zindi Zwingli, and they were like Zwingli or Chamberlain. Yeah. <laughs> But they, uh, you know, periodically I <laughs> the put a, swingly, the ZT, the Swingly and Taliban, Swingly and Taliban, and they get deeply upset about any picture of Jesus, and uh, and I, and I again, I've even learned some of the code words, so I get like a, that's a two C violation or C two second commandment, second commandment violation. Well, the interesting thing, I mean, <clears throat> are they that busy that they have to abbreviate? They're that busy. I guess they are. I guess they are. Well, you got to have to comb their beards. Yeah, you got to trim that well-trimmed beard. I, that's you know, they all have, they all have that like they. I mean, when we grew beards, you know, when I first grew a beard, you grew a beard because you didn't want to shave. But now, like people, beard it's a highly it's, oh, there's beard grooming. Like, ah, it's too much products. work. It's too much work. Anyway, but um, no, the whole idea that the incarnation actually. Um, you know, that's a really important thing. And the church had a really nasty controversy about that. And it, it was such to the extent that some of our, one of our best minds ever, Maximus Confessor, had his tongue cut out and his hand cut off because he was holding on to what ultimately re returns as orthodoxy. The idea of the full human, the full humanity of Christ allows us to understand that, yes, he, he since he once walked away, or John of Damascus, another person says, because he once talked with humans, we can make an image of him. And that he, playing on Athanasians, says he who made matter became matter. And uh, and so that's an important idea that I think sometimes people who who have that more strict view of even there's no images of Christ, you're actually, you know, you you the church has actually had a council about that, seventh Ecumenical Council well, it was about that issue. One yeah. of the best ecumenical councils. It was a good one. It was a nice one. Greatest hits. So I think that it shows up there. And anywhere else it might show up that you can think of. I mean, I think it happens. There's both liberal, there's both liberal and conservative versions of it, both progressive and fundamental. What about praying to Jesus? How about people who exclusively pray to Jesus? Is is there is there a danger that instead of praying, you know, going to the Father through the Son by the Spirit? Is there a little danger that if we just is that a kind of modalism sometimes? I feel like popular evangelical Christianity, the kind I grew up in, kind of turned into a modalism. And I think uh, modalism can be docetic. Yeah, by modalism, you mean there really is just three. Just one. There's one. There's three masks. It's three really masks. Like Clark Kent and Superman. There's, yeah. there's, 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 the, 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 yeah, there's, there's, there's costumes behind. Yeah, there's not real distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Son. Right. I mean, you know what? I, I mean, I never wanted to squelch any kind of honest prayer. So help me, Jesus. I'm not. I'm not against that Jesus, prayer. Jesus, Elvis, anything. Yeah, but uh, you're on your knees. But I. But I do think there's a sense where sometimes, if all of your d divine piety collapses into one part of the Trinity, there's there is a there's a danger that the humanity is somehow compromised in that. I think as well. I, I do think probably the biggest problem is, is disconnecting spirituality from. From sacraments, from gathering together with other Christians, the idea that it's you know that somehow that I can have direct access to whatever's over there without the mediator Christ, I think those are all probably docetic things. Yeah, and it often ends ends up in a kind of elitism too, because usually the people that you know anybody can sort of get baptized or take 
communion and that kind of thing and, and sit to get, and sit through church. <laughs> right, right. But if it's secret knowledge, the kind of of a, of a secret, it tends to a kind of elitism. You kind of have to be the right. guru or disciple of the guru to transcend the limits of, of, of this sort of messy historical contingent life to get into the nether realms or the redeeming realms. Yeah, we'll get to Pelagius, but but that is part of both Pelag- the, the the problem of Pelagianism, and, and I, I'm not sure Pelagius was a heretic, but then we'll talk about that. Not, you got to hear first, folks. Breaking news. Not in the classic sense. I'm I, tweeting that. Both I, so. I think he's wrong, but that doesn't mean I think he's a heretic. Uh, but I think there is kind of a Pelagius, if Pelagius had won... The only people who could be Christians in Pelagius' system are people who are better than anyone you you or I know. Exactly. And I think the same thing, too, is the, the Gnostic tendency, the Docetic tendency was that, that it was ultimately a spirituality of the elite, which is kind of ironic because a lot of the contemporary champions of uh, return to Gnosticism are, are often people in the name of being anti-hierarchical. But, but the truth of the matter is, um, you know, the Gnostic systems um, were never— we're never the common person's yeah. way, you know. Yeah. Now, again, I... Well, yeah, I you need a lot of leisure time to do philosophy. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I know, again, I do think the brilliance of some of the Gnostic systems are, it's a projection of an inner psychology. I mean, the mythology actually has, I mean, the idea that ignorance is part of our problem. Paul himself says ignorance was, was one of his, was his chief problem, his chief sin, at least First Timothy. The Pauline passage says that's why he persecuted, because he was ignorant. So there is. All had the best words. (laughs) So there is. There certainly is. You know, we'll probably talk about more about Gnosticism. So there is a knowledge dimension to salvation, and there is a sense of. I mean, I understand the other worldly, uh, you know, inclinations about religion. I mean, I've preached on the passage in Timothy and Timothy three and four, and where the writer of Timothy is condemning those who are against marriage and saying, you know, dietary things. And, you know, it's kind of an internalization of this, of the spiritual impulse. This world is bad. And I, my, I need a salvation that helps me escape. Um, the Ken Burns, uh, uh, series on country music is really amazing. And, uh, uh, you know, that mountain music, that roots music was kind of what was, I was exposed to. And, you know, the, the Bakersfield sound, for instance, Merle Haggard and Buck Owens, I can't, those guys were escaping from the Dust Bowl. In fact, uh, Buck Owens one time said in, a, in an interview, his family was one week away from starvation. Speaking of dust, Kim Kardashian says, never forget you're made out of stardust and unexamined despair. <laughs> so I, I think there's a sense where the religious impulse to be otherworldly um, is an understandable one because there's a sense where that's you know we do have a hope, but if that other worldliness ever comes at the expense of of denying the goodness of creation, then you're you've moved into a world that isn't really Christian. And I think that was the tension. What did what was the response to the ascetic? Well, it was to emphasize the humanity of Jesus, but also the goodness of creation. Yeah, and pr- perhaps the day we you know resist docetism the most is is Christmas. Yes, and Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian reminds us that Christmas makeup is all about shimmer, sparkle, reds and greens, and touches of gold, and masking our dread and dissolute sensuality. (laughs) Well, hopefully for our next episode, uh, we'll be off of this guy. He'll he'll have lost his his Kardashian Kierkegaardian, um, uh, a a gross merger of two things. But uh, but anyway, uh, what would uh, what would 
Casey, Casey King, you know, a good approach to dosism, a good remedy to dosism is keep your feet on the ground as you reach for the stars, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening and God bless.